from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. If there's a place that represents the tension between preserving the outdated, dirty electric grid and realizing the potential of local renewable power, that place is Puerto Rico. For nearly five years, that tension has played out in frustrating and sometimes deadly ways. And it started with a hurricane. Well, two hurricanes, actually. Senior meteorologist Janice Dean is live in the Fox Extreme Weather Center. Boy, the, the mm. Caribbean has just been getting hammered. Here's storm number four in just weeks. Yeah. And the fact that we're dealing with another Category 5 in just a matter of weeks. We haven't seen two Category 5s in a row since 2007. And this one is on a beeline to perhaps devastate Puerto Rico. And again, prayers are needed for this area. In early September of 2017, Hurricane Irma grazed Puerto Rico. It was a Category 5 storm, a million people lost power, the flooding was severe, but it was spared a direct hit. Until two weeks later, when Hurricane Maria smashed directly into the island with 155-mile-an-hour winds, and it destroyed, truly dismantled, Puerto Rico's electricity system. Well, when Hurricane Maria hits, it comes in from the southeast corner and rips its way across out to the northwest corner. And in the process, it mows down all of these transmission lines, this electrical infrastructure that's on the island. And the Army Corps of Engineers, which led the reconstruction effort um, after Maria, estimated that 80% of the grid was damaged, destroyed, or otherwise compromised by the storm. Dark days in Puerto Rico, expected to last months after Hurricane Maria ripped apart the island's entire power grid. Nearly all of its three and a half million residents without electricity tonight. Reporter Maria Gallucci watched from the mainland. And then a few months later, she traveled to Puerto Rico. 80% of the grid. What did that mean? What kind of images did we see? Sure, it meant that transmission towers, you know, those big lattice structures were completely crumpled. They look like toys, essentially, that have been smashed to the ground. Uh, wood utility poles were split, snapped in half. They're splintered. You drove along the highway and you just saw these kind of snakes' nests of, of wires laying in piles. And, and the, you know, the trucks that were trying to repair it were stuck in these big piles of mud. They had to first clear their way through all the debris to even get to the place they were trying to fix. The streets are littered with downed power lines, the storm even cracking concrete in half, damaging an infrastructure that was already crumbling. Officials say help is on the way, but a full recovery could take half a year. It's unfathomable, and, and it's not, you know, having never experienced an outage like that myself, it, you think, oh, what an inconvenience, but it's not. It's, it's life or death. This was an electricity system that was already under great duress before Irma and Maria hit. What was happening before these hurricanes struck Puerto Rico? Sure, so in the years before the hurricanes hit, Puerto Rico in general had already been suffering through a huge economic crisis. The government had amassed over $70 billion in debt, historic levels, and the utility itself was $9 billion in debt. In fact, they filed for bankruptcy in July, just months before the hurricanes hit. As a result of sort of those financial troubles, they had laid off half of their workforce. They had this long laundry list of routine maintenance work that needed to be done and, and had been overlooked. So when the hurricane hit, the grid was already in this very feeble state and the utility itself was ill-prepared to respond quickly and, and with the supplies it would need to get the grid up and running again. There is no other way to say it. The impact of the storm was cataclysmic. It tore the already fragile electricity system down to nothing. 
But out of the destruction, hope emerged that Puerto Rico's new grid could be built around solar and batteries, not gas, coal, and oil plants connected with remote transmission lines. So one of the big visions that emerged in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria was, okay, this this large centralized system that's dependent on a handful of fossil fuel-fired power plants has crumbled. And if we're going to rebuild it, maybe we should rebuild it into something that's better. So not just long-distance transmission lines and centralized power plants, but also, or maybe instead, a bunch of localized regional systems that rely primarily on renewable energy and can kind of function in isolation. So the idea being that Puerto Rico wouldn't spend all of this time and money rebuilding a system that ultimately is what people say is kind of a 20th century model. So it's five years later, there was a hope that this resilient renewable revolution would happen there. But that's not exactly how it played out, is it? Yeah, that's right. Instead, it played out a little differently than that vision. What you're seeing is that individuals, communities, uh, nonprofit organizations are the ones that are really driving this effort toward a renewable, resilient power system, and not so much the government or the utilities. So people are not just looking out for themselves. They're really taking care of each other and saying, okay, we did this. How can we do more? We're not going to wait and see what the government or the utility are going to do for us, we know that we need to do this ourselves. This is The Carbon Copy. I'm Stephen Lacey. Five years after Puerto Rico's grid was destroyed, the island still relies heavily on centralized fossil fuels, and it's still facing blackouts and accusation of utility mismanagement. But a bottom-up movement has emerged, supporting tens of thousands of solar and battery systems. We'll speak with Canary Media reporter Maria Gallucci about which path the island will take. Faced with the surge of distributed energy resources, electric cars, and grid constraints, utilities are ramping up dynamic pricing. But the results are mixed. If utilities don't implement rates correctly or transparently, it could be a major roadblock for the energy transition and a headache for customers. On June 13th, Latitude Media and GridX will host a frontier forum to examine the imperative of good rate design and the consequences of getting it wrong. Register at the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com events. Clean energy and climate tech are policy-driven industries, and anyone working in this field touches local, state, and federal policy in a very real way. And that's why you should be listening to Political Climate, a podcast from Latitude Media and Boundary Stone Partners that delivers an insider's view on climate policy and politics. Every other week, co-hosts Julia Piper, Emily Dominich, and Brandon Hurlbuck cover the nuances of government funding, regulations, backroom negotiations, and the election, of course. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations and strong opinions from voices across the political spectrum. Listen at latitudemedia.com or subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. The blackout in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria was the longest in U.S. history. It took two months to restore power to half the island's three million residents and nearly one year to fully restore power. And it didn't just upend the lives of millions of Americans there. It ended the lives of thousands of Americans. There's a study uh, by a group of researchers at Harvard that estimated 4,600 people perhaps died during and after the storm, um, not just because of the hurricane, but also because they didn't have access to electricity to refrigerate their medicine like insulin or to hook up their 
um, nebulizers or breathing equipment or to keep cool during kind of extreme heat events. And, and so not having electricity is, is just far more than not being able to charge your phone or, or watch TV or, you know, being able to, to hang out in your house at night. It's, it's you know, like it's, it's life or death. In May, Maria Gallucci went to Puerto Rico for Canary Media to see for herself how people had coped in the years after the storm and found their own ways around the problem. Todos nosotros fuimos víctimas del desastre que fue todo todo el sistema eléctrico, cómo se destruyó, cómo este miles de abonados estuvimos sin luz. I met with a woman named Atala Perez, and she lives in a town called Caguas, which is just south of San Juan. She told me she lived more than six months without electricity and didn't have access to a diesel generator, which many people have, or rooftop solar panels. And for her, basically she said, I had to learn to adapt because in Caguas it's very muggy and humid and hot. And so at night she didn't have a fan, she didn't have an air conditioner. There were a lot of mosquitoes coming through the window and she just had to to sleep with that. Um, to get ice required waiting in lines that would take eight, 10 hours long. And you know, the grocery stores and markets also didn't have a power for some time. And she said it was kind of like a new beginning for her and many of her neighbors. They kind of had to relearn how to you know, live day to day. La vida fue bien difícil y fue como un nuevo comenzar para muchos de nosotros. Atala Perez's experience was not an exception. It was the norm. So why, with billions of dollars flowing into the U.S. territory, did it take months to restore electricity? Yeah, that's a very complicated question to answer. Part of it is mismanagement, is bad contracts. There have been charges of corruption made against FEMA officials and some of the contractors that they hired to repair the grid after Hurricane Maria. After an extreme weather event on the mainland, utilities had these agreements with other states where crews will come over and they'll help, they'll bring equipment and they'll get the grid back up and running. Puerto Rico has that as well, but for whatever reason, for reasons that are unclear, PREPA did not initiate that process until months later. So it took time for these crews from the mainland U.S. to come down and and to help. And FEMA, as we know, even on the mainland, is a very slow-moving complicated agency and things don't always go the way that they should. And certainly that was the case in Puerto Rico. Today, the grid is running again on the island. A lot of infrastructure has been replaced. But nearly five years after the storm, the electricity system still faces severe reliability problems. This morning, across Puerto Rico, an urgent power struggle. Frequent blackouts at times impacting hundreds of thousands of people. Now, officials say the island's power grid is in critical condition. So I went to Puerto Rico in May, and only a few weeks before then, the entire island experienced a three-day blackout after there was a fire and some electrical equipment in the south of the island. And beyond just the blackouts, another sort of more persistent problem are these swings in voltages. So the grid still has trouble regulating the flows in electricity voltage, and ultimately that can fry people's appliances. This summer, a private company, Luma Energy, took over transmission and distribution, bringing in more than 3,000 workers. 
You know, electricity in Puerto Rico has been in a terrible state for a very long time. Why is it worse now than it was before you took over? The utility PREPA was in financial trouble before the hurricane swept through the island. There, one of the solutions to reform the energy system was to privatize the utility. And that has had mixed impacts. What was the outcome of privatizing Puerto Rico's utility? Right. So in 2020, um, PREPA, which is the state-run utility, transferred operation of the transmission and distribution system to Luma Energy, which is a consortium of Canadian and mainland U.S. companies. So PREPA still owns the power plants. Luma operates the grid and handles its reconstruction. And you're right, it's absolutely been mixed. There have been protests in the street. For a lot of people, because the grid problems continue, electricity costs are rising, things haven't necessarily gotten better for many people. Luma itself says it inherited a neglected, faulty system, and they're doing the best they can to fix it. And every quarter produced progress reports sort of detailing what they've replaced, what they're doing. And I spoke with folks who don't necessarily have a problem with Luma that say maybe their experience might even be a little bit better. But I also spoke with more people who are very distressful, very upset with with Luma, and they see Luma as sort of representing the larger challenges with the electricity set, uh, system that the island has faced as a whole. In the fall of last year, there was some investigative reporting about what was happening to the grid under Luma. And one of the stats that grabbed me was that outage times have actually doubled under Luma. It's taking them longer to repair service than it did under PREPA, which had lots of problems to begin with. From what I heard from from individuals, it, it's exactly that. They, they say their experience is either just as bad or is getting worse. They're experiencing outages multiple times a week. They're experiencing these surges in voltage. Atala Perez, who I spoke with in Cagua, said it hasn't gotten better, it's gotten worse. And that's not necessarily the experience of everybody on the island, but I think that collectively there is a, a massive frustration that, you know, the government, the utility, they said they were going to fix this, and it's not getting any better. But while the grid hasn't changed all that much, there's a lot of change happening at the edge of the grid. After the break, Maria details the so-called energy insurrection emerging on Puerto Rico. Mark your calendars for June 13th at noon Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and GridX will host a live, interactive discussion on implementing modern utility rates. Dynamic rates are vital for motivating customers to electrify, adopt DERs, and embrace demand flexibility. Utility rates could make or break the energy transition. So how do we do it right? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, GridX CEO Scott Ingstrom, and economist Ahmad Faruqi for an in-depth discussion on the future of rates on June 13th. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes or go to latitudemedia.com slash events. I'm Julia Piper. I'm Brandon Hurlbut. And I'm Emily Dominich. A little over a year ago, political climate took a break so we could focus on the groundwork of implementing America's biggest ever climate bill, the Inflation Reduction Act. I'm excited to say political climate is back. And I'll be joined by my two co-hosts to riff on the top political stories and insider scoops from state houses to the halls of Congress to regulatory agencies and even international climate talks. We'll explain how those developments are driving industry decisions today. Political Climate is a show for people who want authentic conversations. And to learn about how energy and climate policy is shaped within both political parties from the people who have actually helped shape it. So join me, Brandon and Emily, every other week, starting in April, 
for fresh episodes of Political Climate. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. In the aftermath of Maria, there were lots of ideas about how to reform Puerto Rico's grid to make it more resilient to hurricanes and make it less dependent on burning imported fossil gas and oil. Those ideas involve different configurations of solar and batteries, some centralized, some decentralized. And despite the horrific conditions in the months and year after Maria, there was some hope that a new system could emerge. In 2019, Puerto Rico passed a law mandating 40% renewables by 2025 and 100% renewables by 2050. And the Biden administration is directing another $12 billion toward modernizing the island's grid. New large-scale solar projects have been built. But so far, the island is way behind schedule. It only gets a few percent of electricity from renewables. And there's a worry that those promised government funds will only be used to lock in a centralized system that failed in the first place. But at the edge of the grid, mostly outside the direct support of the utility, there is a movement happening. So in the subsequent months and years, we did see a lot of renewable energy development, a lot of localized solar and battery storage. But it wasn't necessarily coming from the government or the utility. It was happening in a different way. What did that bottom-up renewable energy development look like? Sure. So actually, a recent report just came out and um, found that there are over 42,000 rooftop solar systems have been installed across the island as of January 2022. And so the number is, is by now probably thousands higher. And that's just for systems that are connected to the grid and not those that are kind of off-grid. People built their own systems and didn't tell the utility about it. In most cases of the 42,000 rooftop solar systems, those are residential. And in many cases, those are individual households who could afford to put panels on their rooftops and, and often add batteries as well. But in other cases, um, community groups, nonprofit organizations have developed models to make those systems more affordable or to, to provide access to the systems to people who couldn't otherwise afford it. One of the people tracking this transition is Arturo Masol Deya, a professor at the University of Puerto Rico. He's also the executive director of Casa Pueblo, a nonprofit focused on sustainable development in Puerto Rico. And when Maria went to visit him, he called the distributed solar boom there an energy insurrection. The transformation process is really happening. They're not coming from the government. It's actually coming from within the communities or among the communities, different communities in Puerto Rico. I think it's, it's very special uh, and unique. Definitely. And I think I imagine a lot of that comes from, as you were saying, sort of this integral role that energy, electricity is playing in people's lives or kind of the experience of not having access to it or not having regular electricity is kind of, I imagine that drives a lot of sort of this desire to have something more secure and have ownership over it. Yeah, the, the other thing is the political reality of Puerto Rico of being a colonial, a, a U.S. territory in which we're su submerged in a model of high dependency. And, and, and people are already paying the consequences of that high level of dependency in other aspects of Puerto Rican life. And as you can find a way to break one of them, a critical one, energy, I mean, now, 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 if you can produce your own energy, your own power, now you can think about to govern yourself. 
It's building freedom in, in practical terms. It's about freedom, energy freedom, energy democracy for energy freedom. Uh, and energy freedom should be the ultimate goal. What strikes me about this move to develop more solar in Puerto Rico, you know, 40,000 plus systems, is that not a lot of them are being supported by the utility, the local utility there. Is that is that correct? Right. So the, of the 42,000, those are, are the ones that are counted by the utility. So they do participate in a net metering program, which is when the utility basically pays the, the person who owns the solar system back for the electricity that's put onto the grid. But there aren't necessarily the incentives to help people get those solar panels in the first place. And the net metering process has been very imperfect as well. It could take months, sometimes a year to get enrolled. So some people just choose not to participate at all. Especially in the immediate years after Hurricane Maria, installing rooftop solar took a very long time, was very challenging to go through these permitting processes and, and these kind of hoops to connect to the grid. Some of that is getting easier. The Puerto Rican energy regulators have adopted rules that are supposed to streamline this process a bit more. And, and that's why you are starting to see more of an uptick now. But it's not as fast or as easy as they want it to be either. So it's quite evident that in order to reduce that vulnerability, we need to produce more energy with our own resources. It's, 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 it's quite clear. And yet it's not happening. The fossil fuel industry still have a total control of PREPA. But we, we have done like a projection by 2025, Puerto Rico should be producing by net metering, by citizenship, citizen investment, up to one gigawatt of power, which will be more than necessary for residential consumption. So one gigawatt of power would supply more than the electricity that the residential sector uses in a year? That That is required, yes. There's something else that's happening as well, and there's great concern that Luma has every incentive to invest in natural gas plants rather than distributed renewable energy. What is that incentive and what is the fear that it's going to lock in more fossil fuel development on Puerto Rico? Right. So Luma itself says they support the Puerto Rican government's goals to transition to uh, 100% renewable grid by 2050. Um, but in practice, the the island, the government and the utility, they continue investing in fossil fuel infrastructure and in this existing system. In 2019, PREPA signed a $1.5 billion contract with an American company called New Fortress Energy to replace uh, two of its oil-fired power plants with fossil gas and, kind of more controversially, to build a, an import terminal for liquefied fossil gas, or you hear it called it as liquefied natural gas, the, with the idea being that more fossil gas would be imported to the island. And, you know, this infrastructure is not something that investors and companies are building with the idea that it will be demolished in five years. The, the expectation is that it will continue operating for decades and continue generating profits for decades. And so the incentive that companies have, companies like Luma, New Fortress Energy have, if, you know, for, for them, there is not a financial incentive to shift away to a distributed renewable energy system because a lot of their money is in the existing infrastructure. We have two pathways right now in front of Puerto Rico. One is this distributed renewable path, this bottom-up development of solar and storage systems 
We're seeing a lot of progress there, but it's a lot of outside dollars supporting those systems. And then we have this potential lock-in of fossil gas under Luma, which is managing Puerto Rico's electricity system. Which one of those pathways is most likely to win out? If the past is precedent, maybe the latter, where you have utilities investing in maintaining centralized fossil fuel infrastructure. But I think that I'm cautiously optimistic, I think many people are, that a different path could emerge. There's enough collective commitment to building something different, frustration with the existing system, and kind of, as I think as more of these renewable distributed systems are built, if people experience what it's like to have electricity most of the time instead of these sweeping blackouts that could continue to build support, build investment in sort of this alternative to what exists right now. We are talking right at the beginning of the Atlantic hurricane season. June 1 is when it officially starts. What feels different now in Puerto Rico compared to before Maria? Well, for starters, there's tens of thousands more rooftop solar systems with batteries. And not only on homes, but on fire stations, on hospitals, on critical facilities. So there's infrastructure that exists now that wasn't there before Hurricane Maria. They've replaced these crumbling old wooden poles with concrete towers. They replaced old wires with new ones. So there is sort of a a sturdiness to the centralized system that didn't exist before. I think obviously the island is still extremely vulnerable. If Hurricane Maria were to hit again, there would still be a massive blackout situation most likely. However, it seems that the island is in a better position now to at least recover or, or maybe in certain communities there would be neighbors who would be able to help each other in a way that they couldn't before because now they have some resiliency in their neighborhoods. Maria Gallucci, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. We'll let you get back to your reporting. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm thinking like, oh, wait, i going to put some of this in my story. <laughs> Maria Gallucci is a reporter with Canary Media. She has a feature story live right now with a lot more detail and profiles. It's at canarymedia.com, and you'll find a link in the show notes. The Carbon Copy is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. Go find lots of other great stories in our other podcasts at canarymedia.com. And don't forget to rate and review us on the platform of your choice. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser and Alexandria Herr. Anne Bailey is our senior editor. Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfrank are our engineers. Original music came from Echo Finch and Blue Dot Sessions. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors. That includes advanced energy, food and agriculture, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. Go ahead and send us your thoughts on social media. We'd love to hear from you and send this show to a friend or colleague if you want to spread the word. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Carbon Copy. Thanks for being here. We'll catch you next week. Mm